0: for this webinar. On behalf of the UH Ventures team, I welcome you to our brand new Health Voyager series we're calling Innovation on Tap. Designed to provide educational content and networking opportunities, we hope you find these events valuable to your innovation journey. Our inaugural event tonight is IP with IPAs. We chose this topic because we know that intellectual property concepts can get pretty hazy. Did you know that the label art and packaging that you see on beer bottles are considered works of authorship and can be protected by a copyright law? Did you know that hops, the key ingredients of beer that offer aroma and flavor, can be protected by a patent, but we're here to talk about innovation in healthcare. And that's where we have our featured guest tonight, Greg York, a patent attorney from local law firm of Pern and Gordon. I've had the pleasure to work with Greg over the last two years, he has been a trusted advisor to university hospitals on various patenting matters. Greg has put together a very informative session covering basics of intellectual property, explaining patentability, patenting process, and related topics. There will be a Q&A session at the end of this event, at the end of the presentation. I encourage you to ask questions. Think about this as an informal networking event. You're hanging out with your colleagues at a pub. And with that, I hope you all join me and hoist your favorite beverage. I'd like to now introduce you to Greg. Cheers.
1: Thank you, Dinesh. As Dinesh said, I'm Greg York. I'm a patent attorney at Pern & Gordon here in Cleveland. Before I became a patent attorney, I was a scientist. There were projects, when I was a scientist, there were projects that I worked on where I wondered if there might be some patentable inventions that could be derived from the projects. At the time, I didn't have a background in patent law and I didn't really have an idea of where to begin or uh, or how to answer that question. My aim for this IP 101 presentation is to provide you with information that I now know as a patent attorney, that I would like to have known when I was a scientist in order to be able to answer that kind of question. My hope is that whatever level of knowledge you already have about patent law, that you'll learn some new information from my presentation and that to the extent that you're interested, you'll put it to good use. My presentation will be in three parts. I'll start by providing an introduction to patents. This will include an overview of intellectual property, and the requirements for obtaining a patent then i'll move on to discussing how to go about patenting your invention i'll talk about the patent application process and the process for preparing and filing an application and then i'll i'll proceed to discuss uh, how to go about obtaining allowance of claims to your invention i'll discuss the patent examination process which is also called patent prosecution and I'm going to go over some example of rejections and responses for a simple uh, invention. So, for introduction to patents, I'll mostly be focusing on the requirements for obtaining a patent. Uh, as an overview of intellectual property, intellectual property includes patents, trademarks, copyright, and trade secrets. Patents involve the public disclosure of an invention in exchange for the right to exclude others from practicing the invention for a limited time, generally 20 years from the earliest effective filing date of the patent application. Trademarks are quite different. They relate to designation of source of goods or services. That is what company is providing the goods or services. And that's a shorthand way for consumers to judge quality of of, of, of products and services. Copyright goes to the protection of expression, that is the right to control copying. Uh, Trade secrets relate to information that provides a business advantage and that is maintained as confidential, with protection potentially lasting forever. When it comes to inventions, it's typically, uh, in terms of intellectual property protection, it's typically a matter of deciding between whether to seek patent protection for the invention or whether to to protect the invention as a trade secret. Uh, For inventions that are easy to reverse engineer, uh, patent protection would generally be a better choice. Uh, For inventions which would be expected to remain very, very valuable well after say 20 years from the point at which the invention is, is uh, made, then trade secret protection may make more sense. Uh, the, 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 um, this information that I provided about patents mentions that they, they provide a right to exclude others from practicing an invention. It's important to understand that patents do not provide a right to practice an invention, just a right to exclude others. So there, there can be and, and uh, have been situations where there's been an initial broad patent for an invention uh, that's owned by one, uh, say one company. And then another company develops an improvement on that invention. And the claims of the first patent are broad enough to prevent that the the, um, the second company from practicing its improvement. And at the same time, the patent to the improvement will prevent the first company from practicing that improved version of their own invention it's sort of a strange concept but that's something that's important to know about patents so patents as as documents include two main parts the claims and the specification and drawings the claims define the inventions to be protected And it's typically the case that uh, patents will include more than one claim. So the first claim will be the broadest broadest definition of the invention. And then the additional claims, which will often be drafted to depend from claim one, those, those claims will include further limitations that define the invention more narrowly. And each claim is, each claim covers an invention. Each claim is considered an independent invention, even though they may all be related to that first, uh, to the invention of claim one. The specification and drawings provide support for the claims. Uh, on, on this slide, I'm showing uh, some information from a patent of a local Cleveland inventor, and avid runner, his name is John Kulbus, and he invented a reflective skin spread composition that is highly reflective in vehicle headlights uh, that stays on on skin uh, during intense exercise and that's easy to remove after in on um, what i've shown here uh, from left to right is the cover page of the patent a figure from the patent and then claim one from the patent so the cover page will include bibliographic information and an abstract, which provides a brief description of the invention. Uh, the claim claim one uh, describes the broadest embodiment of the invention. So it's a claim that's directed to a reflective skin spread composition uh, that comprises uh, various components, various compounds uh, at, at particular, uh, in particular amounts. And then the figure provides support for the claims, in this case, by making it easy to appreciate how reflective the skin spread composition is. So what is the invention? It's typically the case that inventors think of inventions as being the idea that they have for their invention or physical embodiments of that idea. Patent attorneys, in contrast, generally think of inventions as claims. That is a sentence which describes the invention in words. It's really important for the inventor and the patent attorney to work together to reduce the idea of the invention into words that that, uh, adequately distinguish the invention from what's been done before, from the prior art. Uh, I'll note that claims generally have three parts, uh, preamble, a transitional term or phrase, and the body of the claim. In this case, the preamble is a tool. The preamble tells you what the claim is generally directed toward. The transitional term in this case is comprising. Uh, There's two other typical transitional uh, phrases. That those are consisting of and consisting essentially of so considering comprising first comprising means that in this case the tool includes each of the parts that are recited in the claim following that transitional term and potentially additional parts so this is an an open-ended transitional term and um, it's worth keeping in mind for claims like this they can be infringed by, for example, a tool that would include a handle, a solid head and additional parts. So in other words, it could be be infringed by an improvement, a future improvement on on uh, on a tool like this. The transitional phrase consisting of means that the, in this case, the tool would include only the parts that are listed in the rest of the claim and no additional parts And the transitional phrase consisting essentially of is intermediate between the um, comprising and consisting of transitional terms. There's one more thing that I'll mention about this. It is is, um, crucial that the inventor not hold back information that's important for practicing the invention uh, and distinguishing it from the prior art uh, the, in patents, you, you only get credit for the information that's actually disclosed in the application. It's not possible once you filed an application, it's not possible to add additional information to that application. So it, it, along with the idea of reducing the invention to words, it's important to make sure that all of the details of the invention are actually captured in writing. or in in the figures of the uh, application. So there are numerous requirements for obtaining a patent. The the first set of requirements that I'll talk about are requirements that that relate to the invention itself. So under the patent statute, the invention must meet four requirements. Those are patent eligible subject matter, utility, novelty, and non-obviousness. And I'll talk about each one of these now. So what is patent eligible subject matter? The following types of inventions are patent eligible based on being listed in the patent statute. Those are articles of manufacture, compositions of matter, machines, methods or processes, or an improvement in any of the above. And I'll note that the fact that the patent statute actually notes that improvements are patent eligible implies that it's it's also um, possible entirely possible to patent articles of manufacture compositions of matter machines or methods and processes that aren't an improvement over anything that came before in other words the patent statute doesn't require improvements that's not a requirement for for um, uh, patent eligibility the tests for patent eligible subject matter have been worked out in case law, particularly US Supreme Court case law over um, many years, the the general idea is that human made inventions are patent eligible and products of nature are not. So from the case law, patent eligible subject matter includes non-naturally occurring manufacturers or compositions of matter, uh, products of human ingenuity, things that have a distinctive name, character, and use. Things that are not patent eligible include laws of nature, physical phenomena, and abstract ideas. This has been an area of um, intense activity and in litigation in the past decade. There, um, the courts have, have mainly been moving in the direction of narrowing the scope of what's considered patent eligible subject matter. So two examples are in the Mayo v. Prometheus case, the U.S. Supreme Court invalidated specific therapeutic diagnostic method claims as not patent eligible. And in the Myriad case, the U.S. Supreme Court held that human genes constitute subject matter that's not patent eligible. The second requirement is for utility. The requirement for utility can be met by any specific and substantial utility that's credible. And in contrast, throwaway insubstantial or nonspecific utilities are not sufficient. This requirement is generally easy to meet. Uh, when writing an application, the patent applicant should include disclosure of at least one specific and substantial use for their invention. The third requirement that goes to the invention is the requirement for novelty. An invention as claimed lacks novelty, meaning that it's anticipated if a single prior art reference discloses the invention. So I mentioned the the way that patent attorneys will typically refer to lack of novelty is using the term anticipation, they're interchangeable. The test for anticipation is Does a single prior art reference disclose all limitations of a claim arranged the same way as in the claim? So if an examiner is going to reject a claim for anticipation, the examiner will typically cite a prior art reference and then explain how that reference discloses all limitations of a claim. And they will ideally they'll also indicate how those limitations are arranged the same way as in the claim and the patent attorney will typically respond if there's a good argument uh, against the rejection for anticipation the the patent attorney will often respond by pointing out that or arguing that the reference does not in fact disclose all limitations of the claim and will specifically point out which limitation or limitations are not actually disclosed and why or the the patent attorney will argue that even though all the limitations may be disclosed in that reference, the limitations are not arranged the same way in the reference as they're arranged in the claim. And I'll note also that another approach for responding to a rejection for lack of novelty would be to amend the claims to add a limitation that's not taught by the prior art reference. The fourth requirement that goes to the invention is non-obviousness. This is generally the hardest requirement to meet. An invention is claimed may be considered obvious if the prior art provides a teaching suggestion or motivation to a person of ordinary skill in the art to combine references to make the invention and the person of ordinary skill would have had a reasonable expectation of success. The term person of ordinary skill in the art is patent jargon it's, it's uh, the concept is, it's a make-believe person that has knowledge of every single reference that's ever been published or patented, all of the information that's been published or patented in their technical field. They know all of it and they're being updated, they're getting updates every single day, but they're not a particularly creative person. This is the standard that that uh, patent examiners use and that we uh, that patent attorneys use in, um, in making arguments about whether or not claims are, are obvious or not obvious. The, the way that an examiner would typically put together a rejection for, uh, for obviousness would be to, cite one reference and explain how it teaches some of the limitations of the claim. And then cite one or more additional references and explain how those references teach the rest of the limitations of the claim. And then the examiner will articulate a reason why a person of ordinary skill who would have known about those references would have been motivated to combine the references to make the invention and then we'll, the examiner will also typically explain why the person of ordinary skill would have had a reasonable expectation of success. Patent attorneys that um, then will respond if there's a good basis for arguing for not for non-obviousness, will then respond by, for example, pointing out that that one of the references that one of the references cited for teaching a limitation doesn't actually teach that limitation or we'll make an argument that there wouldn't have been a motivation to combine the references, or we'll make an argument that the person of ordinary skill, even if they had combined the references, wouldn't have had a reasonable expectation of success in making the invention. Now there's a fallback position that's available if none of those arguments end up being persuasive. The fallback position is that, that prima facie or apparent obviousness can be overcome by secondary considerations. That is, it's, it's possible to present evidence that, for example, that an invention as claimed provides unexpectedly superior results or that, um, that the that commercial products that are based on the invention have had tremendous uh, commercial success these These kinds of arguments supported by evidence can be useful. They can be effective in persuading an examiner that even though claims may the claim may have seemed obvious at a first pass, that there's a good reason to consider the claim to be non-obvious. There's uh, There's a, a, a problem though with using this approach, which is that it usually leads to needing to limit to narrow claims pretty dramatically. Um, and that's because the, there's a requirement under U.S. patent practice that evidence of evidence for non-obviousness it needs to be commensurate in scope with the claim. So if the evidence that's presented relates to just a small, um, uh, like a small part of the claim, then the claim will need to be narrowed down to just cover that small part. So what prior art is available against an invention for rejections, for lack of novelty, or for for non-obviousness, or I should say for obviousness. The patent statute provides the, the prior art indirectly. So the rule is that a person shall be entitled to a patent unless before the filing date of an invention, the invention was patented, described in a printed publication, in public use, on sale, or otherwise available to the public anywhere, or the invention was described in a US patent or published application that names another inventor and has an earlier effective filing date. So that is the prior art includes all printed publications, public uses, um, sales, and and, uh, other things that made, uh, made information or an invention available to the public anywhere or previously filed U.S. patents and published applications. That is, uh, patents or published applications that were filed before the filing date of of the application um, that's, that's being considered and that name another inventor. There are some exceptions under U.S. patent practice. There are some exceptions to the prior art that's listed there. Those include disclosures by the inventor less than one year before the filing date. That's the one year grace period for disclosures by inventors. Uh, and then also subject matter of a disclosure that had earlier been disclosed by the inventor less than one year before the filing date or that was commonly owned. So there, the, this, the, the grace period, these exceptions are included in order to encourage rather than discourage US inventors, uh, to disclose their inventions even before filing an application and um, and then waiting up to one year to file the application it's it's not good practice though to disclose an invention publicly before filing an application particularly if if the patent applicant is interested in getting protection for the invention not just in the united states but in foreign countries and that's because Foreign countries generally don't provide this grace period. So in foreign countries, the inventor's own disclosure could be used against the inventor's application, even if that disclosure was made less than one year before the filing date. Another thing is that it would be uh, very expensive if the inventor discloses their invention publicly in the US and then files an application afterwards and somebody else races to the patent office based on the inventor's public disclosure and files earlier it would be very expensive for the inventor to prove that the other person the other person's application was based on the inventor's disclosure so best practice is file an application first then make public disclosures only after that so i mentioned i've talked so far about requirements that go to the invention There are also requirements that go to the application. These include enablement, which is, um, this relates to whether the application is filed, includes sufficient information to enable a person of ordinary skill in the art to make and use the claimed invention. The written description requirement, which is is, um, directed to whether the applicant was in possession of the invention at the time of filing and and whether the application itself demonstrates that and also the best mode requirement, uh, which addresses the issue of whether the applicant disclosed the best mode of practicing the invention as understood at the time of filing. Each of these requirements relates more to information that's provided in the application than, or as opposed to details of the invention itself. And that's why there, um, there are requirements that go to the application. So now we'll move on to the second part of my presentation. We'll talk about patenting your invention and particularly the patent application process. So there are two types of patent applications. The first is provisional applications and the second is non-provisional applications. Provisional applications are quick and inexpensive ways to establish a priority date. There there are a few formal requirements for, for filing a provisional application But it's important to understand that provisional applications never issue as patents. They're not examined. They're just accepted by the Patent Office, and then the Patent Office creates a record of the provisional application. To preserve rights for the invention, a non-provisional application claiming benefit from the provisional application needs to be filed within one year. If more than one year goes by after filing the provisional application, and no non-provisional application is filed the priority date from the provisional application for that invention will be lost it's also important to understand that provisional applications provide priority only with respect to what they disclose so if the provisional application is written in a way where it does not provide an adequate description of the invention which would be which might be typical for a quick and inexpensively prepared patent application, for example, in that situation, if the patent applicant needs to rely on the provisional application to overcome a prior art reference uh, that, say, that was published between when the provisional application was filed and when the later non-provisional application is filed, the provisional application that doesn't provide the adequate disclosure or adequate description won't be useful. Uh, to distinguish the prior art reference. In contrast, a provisional application that provides an adequate description of the invention, that can be useful for uh, overcoming prior art and and relying on that earlier priority date of the provisional application instead of the later filing date of the non-provisional application. Now, non-provisional applications are real patent applications. They need to comply with all statutory and formal requirements And these are the applications which are actually examined by patent examiners uh, to determine whether they meet the requirements for uh, for the invention and the application. And these are the applications that can ultimately issue as a patent. The patent process includes numerous steps. Uh, They're listed here. So conception of the invention is where the invention process starts. Conception is coming up with the idea of the invention. And this is conception is uh, key to inventorship. It's fairly typical for inventors to reduce their invention to practice. Actual reduction to practice means making, uh, making a physical embodiment of the invention. If it's uh, say an article of manufacture or a composition or a machine or practicing uh, carrying out the invention if it's a process or a method. That's actual reduction to practice. There's also something called constructive reduction to practice, which just means filing a, a patent application. So filing an application is also that itself is considered reduction to practice. It's, it's good good practice, best practice uh, for inventors to prepare a report, a report of their invention. Uh, that um that's typically the process that's in place within companies and research institutions and that provides a way to evaluate way for the inventor and others to evaluate the invention Uh, prior art searches are can be done they're they're optional they're not required the patent office is going to do its own prior art search once a non-provisional application is filed but they can be useful Uh, the there's the step of preparing the patent application Uh, then filing the patent application. If if it's a provisional application, keep in mind then that a non-provisional application will need to be filed within one year claiming benefit from the provisional or else the priority date from the provisional will will be lost. It's it's typical regarding assignment of applications that is transferring ownership of the application from the inventor or inventors to uh, another entity, typically the company that they work for. It's typical for employment contracts to require that employees assign their inventions to their employer if the inventions relate to their employment. And, and um, the, the details would depend on the the details of that would depend on the employment contract. It's typical for patent applications to be published. The in fact there are um, I should say non-provisional applications get published. Provisional applications never get published, though they do become accessible to the public when a non-provisional application is ultimately published, and it includes a claim of benefit back to a provisional application. Uh, There's a way to file applications, even non-provisional applications in the US, and to not have them get published. But it requires agreeing in advance not to file foreign applications. the claiming benefit from that non-provisional U.S. application. And the publication of applications typically occurs 18 months after the, the earliest filing date of the application. Uh, and it, that is typically long before the inventors will know whether or not they're ultimately going to get claims allowed for their invention. So there's, this, um, there's a requirement to commit to the patent process um, and in disclosing to the public the invention before it's known whether or not you're going to be able to get uh, claims issued for your invention. I'll talk about prosecution of applications in uh, part three or in a few moments. Uh, the the ultimately the application ideally ultimately the application issues as a patent. Otherwise, it becomes abandoned. Uh, the, the once the patent Issues from the application, the the, um, the issues of infringement and validity enforceability can come up. So, if the patent owner is going to assert the patent against other entities, that they they may want to do that in order to block other entities from making uh, valuable competing commercial embodiments of the invention, and. When that happens, it's typical for the alleged infringers to challenge validity and enforceability of the patent. So it's good to consider these issues at the start of the patent application process, um, particularly to keep in mind that it's a useful goal to try to end up with claims that are broad enough that they'll block competitors from practicing valuable commercial embodiments of the invention, but narrow enough that they will withstand validity challenges. Patents require uh, payment of maintenance fees to keep them in force in the US. That's at four, eight, and 12 years after issue of the patent. In foreign countries, it's typically each year that an annuity is due. And then patents, patents ultimately expire generally about 20 years after the filing date. In the US, there can be extensions of time based on patent office delay. And sometimes the terms of patents are cut short by terminal disclaimers. So I mentioned prior art searches before. Um, These are designed to identify anticipatory prior art. They're optional. They're useful for ruling out novelty or non-obviousness, not for ensuring them. It's not really practical to do an exhaustive prior art search in most cases. Uh, So it's more an issue of of um, trying to determine uh, with reasonable effort whether there are, are um, prior art references that may cause a problem for the invention. And then there also prior art searches also are useful for ensuring that the application will provide sufficient detail, meaning uh, potential claim limitations that can be included in the claims initially or added to the claims during patent examination to distinguish over the prior art. So then the next step would be this preparing and filing the application. When that's done, it's important to write the application in view of all countries in which protection will be sought. Uh, For for US applications, consider following general approaches. Uh, You can frame, you can and generally should frame the invention in multiple ways and in varying scopes, particularly from broad to narrow. That's the the, um, broad is good for uh, for blocking competitors broadly. Narrow is good for withstanding validity challenges and, and actually during examination, distinguishing prior art references cited by the examiner. Uh, it's generally helpful to provide multiple examples and multiple ranges of uh, say concentrations for compounds in a composition or measurements for uh, or dimensions for a device. It's It can be helpful to, um, and these days, it's often a, a great idea to define key terms in the application, at least make clear what the terms uh, relate to. And it's best practice to avoid characterizing prior art in the application. That is uh, to avoid saying what the prior art discloses. The reason, the reason for that is that an admission about the prior art, that's incorrect. Can still be used against the applicant. It, it's um, that so it's better it's better not to make admissions about the prior art. It's not necessary to characterize the prior art, and it generally um, it generally can be harmful to the patent applicant uh, later during examination. It's also best to avoid superlatives. There's no need to to describe the invention as being the best. Um, that isn't helpful and in. in examination and it can work against a patent owner that's asserting the patent in litigation. So for for uh, the final part of my presentation I'm going to talk about the process of obtaining allowance of claims. This is the idea here is to bring together the requirements that go to uh, obtaining a patent, requirements for the invention or the application uh, and applying them to a specific invention. So the patent examination process works like this generally, the examiner will make rejections that is the examiner typically issues one or more rejections and or objections to the claims and or the specification arguing failure to meet requirements, the requirements that we talked about earlier. Then the applicant has the opportunity to respond by amending the claims and or presenting arguments and or evidence to overcome the rejections and objections and then if the examiner is ultimately persuaded to withdraw all rejections and objections then the application is allowed and it can issue as a patent. It's worth noting this process of, of rejection and response will often go through um, more than one, one round and depending on the number of rounds and um, how, how that process is proceeding it may be necessary for a patent applicant to pay additional fees to the USPTO in order to keep the examination process going. So I have an example here. This is our exercise in making rejections and and responses uh, for a particular invention. The the idea here is to highlight uh, or to, to show a very simple invention and then use that as a way to see how rejections and responses are actually articulated, like how an examiner would actually articulate a rejection and what kind of responses might be uh, might be effective um, for that particular rejection. So I've I've presented these this example many times um, in classes and presentations to uh, clients. And I will say that in um, in having many students and uh, scientists and engineers consider this example, I'm always pleased and kind of amazed at, that it's often the case that they'll, they still come up with new ideas for rejections or responses that I haven't thought of and that I haven't heard anybody else bring up before despite the invention being quite simple. So I, I will encourage you as we go through this pro, this uh, exercise if you have ideas for rejections or responses that you'd be interested to discuss at the end in q a um, or just have me consider feel free to type type those into the q a um, and I'll, I'll be interested to see what you what you provide so our invention here is a table it the our application includes two claims. The first claim is to a table comprising an elevated horizontal surface, and the second claim is to a table comprising an elevated horizontal surface supported by three legs. The patent applicant files the application, and probably a year to two years later, the patent examiner picks up the case, does a prior art search, and in this case, the examiner finds one prior art reference. So this reference is a photograph of a tree stump. The tree stump has uh, a um, a surface on which an axe is lying, and a base that's a base that the stump base that supports the surface of the stump. And the examiner thinks that uh, that the examiner can make a a At least one rejection of at least one of the claims based on this prior art reference. That's why the examiner is citing it. So I will ask you to take a moment to consider if you were an examiner, how might you use that prior art reference to reject one or both of the claims in this case? What principles would you use to make the rejections? And what specific rejections might you make? Uh, so take a moment to think about that, and we'll proceed. So the the principle that patent examiners will use is they will they will determine whether the invention fails to meet one or more of the requirements that go to the invention or the application. And for the rest of this, I'm just going to focus on on requirements that go to the invention. The another principle that the examiners use is that they they, they examine each claim for patentability independently. So they'll consider claim one and then they'll separately consider claim two. So considering claim one, have all the requirements for an invention been met for claim one. That is patent eligibility, uh, utility novelty, and non-obviousness. I expect that an examiner would, would likely or could uh, issue a rejection for lack of novelty rejection of claim one over this prior reference for lack of novelty and a way that an examiner might make that rejection is to to argue that the stump is a table meaning a flat surface that comprises an elevated horizontal surface therefore the prior art reference discloses all limitations of claim one arranged in the same way as the claim if an examiner so I, i'll say. The examiner is required under u s. patent practice to give claim terms their broadest reasonable interpretation that has uh, that has a particular meaning under patent law. and the the way that that works in in practice is that patent examiners are allowed to give claim terms very broad interpretations, often interpretations that are much broader than what a patent applicant would think is reasonable or what they intended. So what's a, a potential response? Uh, one, one potential response would be to argue for a different definition of the, of the term table. For example, that a stump is not a table, meaning that that is that the, the word table means an artic, an article of furniture. A stump is not an article of furniture, therefore a stump is not a table. But the, the, the way that that um, the persuasiveness of this argument would be determined, would be to determine whether the term table could mean a flat surface as the examiner is saying under the broadest reasonable interpretation of table in the claim so that that term flat surface for a table comes from a dictionary i checked earlier and that's where that's where i got that from so if the if the applicant didn't include a definition of the term table that's narrower than that in the application we're probably not going to get very far with this argument. In contrast, if the applicant has defined the term table in the application to mean an article of furniture, this could be a great argument for withdrawal of the rejection. And then kind of intermediate between the two, it may be the case that the application has included some examples of tables. And if if, for example, there's uh, an example of a table being portable, we might amend this claim to recite that the table, that to include the limitation that the table is portable. A stump is not portable. That could be a good way to distinguish the claim from the prior art reference. There's a potential second response, which would be to argue that the elevated surface of the stump is not horizontal and um, in this case the key would be whether we can demonstrate this based on teachings of the prior art reference or other other evidence so we might look carefully at the the picture of the stump and make an argument that 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 the the surface is actually uh, slanted it's not horizontal Um, or we might we might be able to provide other evidence maybe there's some later publication that discusses this stump in more detail we point to that and this is um the, obviously, the, uh, this is a, oh, like very simplified, but these are the these are the kinds of approaches which actually can be quite helpful for overcoming rejections in actual um, patent applications. So there's a second rejection which the examiner might make. Uh, that could be for obviousness. An example of that would be that the examiner may argue that the prior art reference teaches all limitations of claim one except that the surface of the stump is not horizontal and that making a surface of a stump horizontal is a simple design choice. Examiners are allowed to use reasoning like this and they will, they do. Uh, So for us to, or for the patent applicant to overcome a rejection like this, one thing to consider would be, is there any evidence that a horizontal surface provides an unexpected advantage? And and if so, to consider arguing non-obviousness on this basis. So now let's turn to claim two. Uh, it, so does ha, does uh, claim two meet all the requirements for uh, for an invention for patenting an invention? One one rejection that an examiner might make would be for obviousness. So here here for example, an examiner may argue that a stump is a table comprising an elevated horizontal surface supported by legs. That is the base the the or i'm sorry supported by a leg that is the base of the stump and that adding two additional legs for the same purpose with predictable results would have been obvious this also is the kind of this is the kind of reasoning that examiners are allowed to use that and that they do use so a potential potential response could be to argue that the base of the stump is not a leg we might focus on what the what the proper definition of leg is and maybe maybe the application includes a definition of leg or some examples that would be um, that would be useful for distinguishing a stump. Uh, another possible response would be to argue that it's it isn't actually possible to add additional legs to the stump. Uh, that is that it, that um, it like maybe there's not enough room. Uh, that it would change it would in, entirely change the nature of, of what's disclosed in the prior art there may be other responses that could be effective also. Now, I, this is the um, second to last slide. And this is an example uh, for US application number two to a table with square corners and four legs. And I would leave it to you to think about how an examiner might apply the prior art stump and what would now be the prior art table with three legs to articulate rejections of these of the two claims to this uh, table with four legs, and this the point of this one point of this is that the details really matter, like the the number of the parts and uh, details about the, the the dimensions of parts things like that. So I'll for my final slide I've I've included. Three additional resources that I think are quite useful, uh, that you may find useful if you're interested in learning more about patents. The first is the book Patent It Yourself by David Pressman. It provides a lot more detail about the patent process. The second is a book, Biodesign, The Process of Innovating Medical Technologies. This is a fantastic resource for startup companies for understanding uh, what the startup uh, process is, is about. And then the third is a link to university hospitals ventures. So for UH, UH inventors, consult with your colleagues in UH ventures. They'll, they can help you to determine whether uh, it may be, uh, whether it may be valuable to pursue a patent for inventions that you're, um, that you come up with.